Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require operator assistance during the workshop, please press star and zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Metzner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Sonia, and I, too, would like to welcome all of you to this really amazing program, the latest developments reported at the 41st Annual San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, or often called SABCS. Now, for many of you living with breast cancer, this is an opportunity to hear what the latest uh, treatments are, what the evidence shows in terms of your treatment. So I'm really glad that there are so many of you on the call today. Today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, as well as a host of other breast cancer organizations. And um, we have participants on the call today from all of the United States, and we also have participants from Australia, Canada, England, India, and Switzerland. And we have over 525 participants on the call today. So it's a large call. And it's a credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. Now, today's program is made possible by AbbVie, the Celgene Corporation, Clovis Oncology, Inc., Novartis Oncology, Pfizer, Syndex Pharmaceuticals, Inc., and supported by a grant from Genentech. And I really want to thank them for their support. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, really the best of the best. And I want to start by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Rachel Jenkowitz. Dr. Jenkowitz is Medical Director, McGee Women's Hospital, High-Risk Breast Cancer Program, Assistant Professor, Department of Medicine, Division of Hematology, Oncology, the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. Dr. Jenkowitz is going to address an overview of the 41st Annual San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, updates on genomics, genetics, and breast cancer care, and new research reported for the treatment of early-stage breast cancer. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Jenkowitz. Thank you, Carolyn, and to all the participants for the opportunity to talk with everyone this afternoon. That's an ambitious agenda, but I'm going to just go through what I found the most interesting um, uh, under the umbrella of those topics. So the first thing I'd like to highlight is uh, an interesting study that was presented and simultaneously published in, in the Journal of Clinical Oncology about genetic testing in breast cancer patients and who should get genetic testing to identify hereditary risk uh, for breast cancer. It's estimated that about 10% of breast and ovarian cancer patients uh, have cancer that is attributed to a hereditary cause. And the guidelines that were originally developed to decide who should be offered that type of testing were developed in an era where they were really looking for BRCA mutations. And at that time, the cost was very high, upwards of 2000 to $5,000 per test. Uh, and the question that the investigators were asking is, how do the current guidelines, uh, NCN, NCCN guidelines for genetic testing, perform when now the cost is much lower at about $250 a test? And we now have much more expanded panel testing available with many more genes besides BRCA. So the investigators looked at 20 different community and academic sites and looked at two cohorts of breast cancer patients, one who met the guidelines and one who didn't. All of the patients got a multi-gene panel looking for hereditary cancer risk. Um, and essentially, at the end of the day, in over 1,000 patients, there was no difference in those who met guidelines for testing and those who didn't. Uh, about 8.6% of the patients overall were found to have a mutation that was a hereditary mutation that was actionable, and it didn't matter whether they met the guidelines for testing or not. And so essentially the authors concluded that if we follow current guidelines, we would miss nearly half of breast cancer patients with a pathogenic or likely pathogenic variant or mutation, and they argued, therefore, that all breast cancer patients should be offered genetic testing, which is really um, sort of a huge, a huge thing and something that as the breast cancer community, we need to move forward with this information now and talk about it with our patients. 
Dr. Domchek from the University of Pennsylvania also had a very interesting presentation, and she gave us some words of caution about the complexity of this testing and the need to pay careful attention to these individual mutations and their significance because they really are not often similar to BRCA1 and 2. There are many genes now that have been attributed with breast and or ovarian cancer risk, and some of them have pretty serious uh, implications in terms of even reproductive implications if someone has uh, two copies of a broken gene. Uh, the risk assigned to each of these genes is constantly changing, and the design of the studies that we we design to look at that risk really affects the risk that we attribute to each gene. She stressed the importance of doing prospective, meaning following in real time uh, patients in order to really carefully understand the risk associated with these mutations. Um, and she cautioned that NCCN guidelines will continue to change as this data evolves. And next, uh, Dr. Evans from the UK talked about polygenic risk scores that incorporate SNPs and how how that process is being refined over time. So he gave a very nice presentation about how um, in patients who have either family history or no family history, you can look at uh, smaller genetic changes called SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms and incorporate those and breast density into breast cancer risk prediction models in order to really refine how we think about breast cancer risk. And hopefully, we will soon be able to identify patients who are at actually very low risk of breast cancer based on um, those findings. In terms of early stage breast cancer, um, one of the most interesting trials that I think was presented was a phase three trial looking at low-dose tamoxifen for patients with DCIS and LCIS. And basically, that study enrolled 500 women with uh, LCIS, DCIS, or atypical cells called ADH onto five milligrams of tamoxifen for three years or a placebo. And it was very exciting to see that there was a 52% reduction in recurrence uh, in those patients with three years of tamoxifen and also a 75% reduction in the risk of contralateral breast cancer or a new breast cancer on the opposite side. The um, side effects of the low-dose tamoxifen were much lower than standard-dose tamoxifen and Basically, uh, that is an exciting new strategy for our patients with LCIS or, or DCIS or atypia to lower their risk of recurrence or new breast cancers in the opposite breasts. And finally, I think um, one important question in early-stage breast cancer that we all are often asking is how long do our patients need to stay on an aromatase inhibitor? We saw a large meta-analysis from the EBC-TCG investigators and over 22,000 women uh, who have taken aromatase inhibitors for longer or shorter duration. And to distill that down, they essentially saw a substantial benefit in prolonged or more than five years of aromatase inhibitor use in patients with positive lymph nodes where the absolute benefit really does start to to matter, uh, the benefit seen in patients with negative lymph nodes was, was lower, and there was an increased risk of fractures in the patients who remained on aromatase inhibitors longer. So I think we need to tailor that discussion with our patients based on their original level of breast cancer risk um, and uh, balancing that in terms of their, their bone density and their side effects, especially if they're on the lower end risk of the breast cancer scale with negative lymph nodes. And finally, in contrast to that, there was a Japanese trial presented that was uh, in, in contrast to the meta-analysis because it actually showed a fairly substantial benefit to five years of anastrozole, which is an aromatase inhibitor, um, I'm sorry, to 10 years of anastrozole, which is an aromatase inhibitor compared to five, where they saw a 7.5% benefit in disease-free survival with 10 years of the aromatase inhibitor over five and a 3% improvement in distant disease-free survival. And they actually did see a benefit in patients with negative lymph nodes. 
So we ask ourselves, why was that study different? And when you looked at the patient characteristics, what was very interesting to see is that the Japanese women overall had a very low BMI or a thin frame, and uh, it left us wondering whether perhaps that could have um, provided a difference, whether their body weight may have um, caused this difference. But that will require further follow-up to keep asking these questions. And I think those were the, the topics that I wanted to highlight, and I'll be happy to take questions after the other presenters are finished. Well, thank, thank you so much, Jack, Dr. Jackwitz. That was really outstanding, really just an outstanding, really you chose really very important studies to present to this group, and I think there will be questions here during the Q&A, but thank you. That was really quite brilliant and thoughtful. Thank you. Um, and our next speaker um, is Dr. Lisa Newman. Dr. Newman is a surgeon. She's Chief Director of Breast Surgery, Director Interdisciplinary Breast Cancer Program, Wall Cornell Medicine, New York Presbyterian Hospital Network. And Dr. Newman is going to present the role of surgery in breast cancer treatment, quality of life and survivorship care plans, and research findings on managing lymphedema. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Newman. Thank you very much, Dr. Messner. It's such a pleasure to uh, participate in this telemedicine conference. So I'll begin as requested by reviewing the role of surgery in breast cancer management, and then I'll just briefly summarize some of the research studies that were pre presented at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, which address surgical issues, quality of life, and lymphedema management. So surgery continues to be the primary component or the common denominator in managing the very high majority of our breast cancer patients. And the goals of surgery involve some therapeutic goals to eradicate the disease in the breast, but we also obtain very important pathologic and staging information from the surgical specimens. And this information has prognostic relevance and it also allows us to better define both radiation and medical or systemic treatment needs in our patients. The surgical plan for an early-stage invasive breast cancer patient focuses on three important principles. The first is the most straightforward, and it's the same principle that we adhere to regardless of whether we're dealing with a cancer of the breast or a cancer of the colon and the lungs. This is the principle that you want to rid the body of that index cancer if it's technically feasible. And this is the reason why the high majority of our breast cancer patients do indeed require some surgery as at least one component of their care. Now, the second principle is more specific or unique to cancers that we do diagnose in a woman's breast. And this is the principle that we also need to address any microscopic breast cancer cells that might be hiding in other normal-appearing parts of the breast. Now, the oldest form of breast cancer treatment is mastectomy, and so with mastectomy by complete removal of the breast, we're basically addressing those first two principles in one fell swoop. The alternative to the mastectomy surgery is breast-conserving surgery, where we perform a lumpectomy that focuses on just removing the primary site of disease or the index tumor that led to the biopsy and the diagnosis. If the lumpectomy was successful, which is defined by achieving negative margins, we can't see any cancer cells at the surfaces of the lumpectomy specimen, and in many cases we have to perform another, another mammogram after the lumpectomy has been performed to confirm that there are no other concerning areas in the remaining portion of the breast. But once the lumpectomy has been determined to be successful, we then rely upon radiation treatments to the breast to kill any of those microscopic cancer cells that might be hiding in the remaining breast. Survival is the same for patients that undergo the breast-conserving surgery compared to the patients that undergo mastectomy, and this is because of the fact that survival from breast cancer is largely determined by the biologic aggressiveness of the cancer and whether or not the cancer is aggressive enough to be hiding in other organs and potentially damage other organs of the body, such as the liver, the lungs, or the bones. And this brings us to the third principle of planning surgery for breast cancer patients, which involves staging of the cancer by checking the lymph nodes or the glands of the underarm area. Now, in the past, we always did an operation called an axillary lymph node dissection in any of our invasive breast cancer patients to assess these lymph nodes, and the axillary lymph node dissection involves basically removing the entire fat pad of the underarm to determine which of the lymph nodes, if any, had cancer in them. 
but this is the operation that puts many of our patients at risk for a problem called lymphedema, where they have an easy tendency to develop swelling in the arm on that side. So it was very important for us to try to identify a more minimally invasive way of evaluating the underarm lymph nodes which is now commonly performed as an operation called a sentinel lymph node biopsy, where we really just focus on identifying and removing the most important lymph nodes that are responsible for draining the breast and therefore the breast cancer. The sentinel lymph node surgery is typically performed at the same time as the breast surgery, and it will be necessary regardless of whether the patient has the mastectomy or the lumpectomy. If we do find cancer cells hiding in those lymph nodes, it's a, it does not mean that the cancer is untreatable, but it is a very powerful clue indicating that the woman might have microscopic cancer cells hiding in other organs that would benefit from chemotherapy treatment. So just as the sentinel lymph node biopsy is necessary, regardless of whether the patient has chosen mastectomy or lumpectomy surgery, Similarly, the, ultimately, the, the ultimate recommendation regarding whether or not chemotherapy is going to be necessary will also be independent of whether the patient chose the mastectomy or the lumpectomy route. Now, I do want to comment briefly, however, that while the lymph node information is important to identify some patients who need chemotherapy, it's not the only thing that we look at. And there are some patients where the lymph nodes are negative where we do still have to consider chemotherapy based on primary tumor features of the cancer or based upon spe special genetic profiles of the cancer, uh, based upon a variety of other uh, tumor features. Since, however, the survival rates are the same for the lumpectomy and mastectomy patients, we, of course, tend to prefer to offer the less disfiguring surgery to our patients, but some women are simply not very good candidates for lumpectomy surgery, perhaps because they have multiple tumors scattered throughout the breast or diffuse abnormalities on their mammograms, or in other patients because we can't get the negative margins with the lumpectomy surgery. In the patients that choose to undergo mastectomy or the patients that need mastectomy because of their tumor features, we always want to offer those patients breast reconstruction options, which are typically performed by the plastic surgeons. Now, in the United States, we've been seeing over recent years a pretty dramatic increase in the number of breast cancer patients that have been requesting a bilateral mastectomy or double mastectomy operation, even though they were diagnosed with a single tumor that could have potentially been managed by lumpectomy. And often these patients state that they prefer the more extensive surgery because they want to reduce the chances of getting a second future breast cancer that would require repeating that entire breast cancer diagnosis and treatment experience. So this is a very difficult and very personal decision to make, but the woman choosing bilateral mastectomy must remember that the prevention mastectomy is not a guarantee against getting another breast cancer because you can have microscopic amounts of breast cells hiding in the skin flaps or in the underarm area. Also, the double mastectomy surgery does not confer a survival advantage because second cancers, if they do develop, are usually caught at a very early stage when they're going to be treated effectively. So now I'd like to very briefly discuss some of the San Antonio breast cancer patients' uh, studies that were presented, and there were two surgical studies that I'd like to review. Uh, the first was a study presented by Dr. Kim representing the Young Women's Breast Cancer Study, which was a multicenter prospective cohort study of more than 1,300 breast cancer patients who were all diagnosed no older than the age of 40. And this large study is led by Dr. Ann Partridge from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. So in this first study, Dr. Kim evaluated a subset of 315 patients who received neoadjuvant or preoperative chemotherapy, and then she evaluated the surgical treatment plans after tumor downstaging by delivery of this preoperative chemotherapy. Now, as has been shown before, preoperative chemotherapy did indeed shrink down more tumors and resulted in more patients being eligible for lumpectomy surgery because of that downstaging. Nonetheless, they found that 40% of the patients who became eligible for lumpectomy continued to choose mastectomy, reinforcing what we commented on previously, that some women choose mastectomy surgery for very personal reasons. 
The second surgery study that I'd like to summarize was presented by Dr. Marante, who wanted to determine whether the timing of chemotherapy delivered in the adjuvant setting or postoperatively affected survival outcomes. And so these investigators looked at more than 2,000 patients from Peru, and of those, they selected 684 cases of triple negative breast cancer, all of whom received postoperative chemotherapy. And at 10 years follow-up, they found that there was a decrease in survival if the postoperative chemotherapy was delivered more than 30 days postoperatively. There were two studies that evaluated quality of life related to extent of surgery, specifically comparing breast conserving surgery versus mastectomy. Dr. Rosenberg looked at a database of patients participating in a phase three study that compared two different chemotherapy regimens. And Dr. Dominici looked at data from the Young Women's Breast Cancer Study that we alluded to previously. Both of these investigators actually found that the women undergoing breast conserving surgery tended to have better quality of life metrics compared to the mastectomy patients, which is kind of paradoxical since the women who choose a double mastectomy often state that they're motivated to pursue the more extensive surgery because they think that it's going to give them more peace of mind or better quality of life. So we do need to counsel our patients that the double mastectomy surgery may not necessarily give them the peace of mind that they are expecting. There was another quality of life study that came out of the Taylor-Rex study, which was a large uh, randomized study of the Oncotype DX recurrence score testing, but this was a subset analysis looking at patient-reported outcomes in women that had chemotherapy plus endocrine therapy versus women that received endocrine therapy alone. And as you might have predicted, the patients receiving chemotherapy did have greater declines in cognitive function, they had more fatigue, and they suffered more severely from vasomotor symptoms such as hot flashes and night sweats compared to the women that did not receive chemotherapy. Happily, however, the investigators found that these larger magnitude adverse effects experienced by the chemotherapy in patients did improve over time, and at one year follow-up, the patient-reported outcomes were actually the same for the chemotherapy patients compared to the non-chemotherapy patients. Now, in the interest of time, I'm going to skip very briefly over to the uh, presentation that was uh, delivered just addressing lymphedema in breast cancer patients. And this was a wonderful presentation by Dr. Sarah McLaughlin, where she reviewed that approximately 20% of breast cancer patients undergoing axillary surgery do experience lymphedema, and the biggest risk factors tended to be the extent of the surgery, axillary lymph node dissection versus minimally invasive lymph node surgery, and obesity. Interestingly, she also demonstrated in reviewing the literature that factors not associated with lymphedema were use of blood pressure cuffs to measure blood pressure, air travel, flying, and limited blood drawing and venipuncture. So this is important because many women are fearful that they can't have any blood pressure drawn after lymph node surgery, and this is simply not the case. So they, uh, these authors uh, recommended that all breast cancer patients undergo early and aggressive physical therapy to prevent lymphedema. They participate in a regular exercise program and avoid obesity. And I'll, uh, I'll discontinue there. Uh, well, thank you so much, Dr. Newman. That was really, ex ex really ex extraordinary, wonderful presentation, and uh, raised a lot of very important issues. And so, thank you so much, and, uh, and lots of good takeaway from that the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium that you have delighted to our participants. So, thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Tufia Haddad. Um, Dr. Haddad is associate professor of oncology, Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota, and Dr. Haddad is going to address. Updates in targeting HER2 breast cancer, estrogen receptor ER positive and progesterone receptor PR positive breast cancer updates, and management of metastatic and late recurrence breast cancer. It's really my great uh, honor and privilege to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Haddad. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Mesner, and, and my sincere thanks to the participants for in, engaging in this uh, teleconference and discussion here today. Uh, so I'm really honored to uh, present some of the updates, uh, and I'll start first here with uh, HER2-positive breast cancer. 
And I think it's been such a, a fantastic few years uh, for research uh, for patients with HER2-positive breast cancer. Um, there have been tremendous gains uh, in improvements in therapies uh, to help uh, reduce the risk of breast cancer recurrence for patients with early-stage operable HER2-positive disease. And in fact, uh, our, our new guidelines for staging breast cancer, historically we had only used the size of the tumor and the lymph node status to determine whether breast cancer is stage one, two, three, or four. Um, now in 2018, we are incorporating the estrogen receptor status, the HER2 receptor status of the tumor, tumor grade, as well as genomic testing when appropriate, to provide staging information which translates to prognosis information for patients. And the reason I bring this up is because HER2 positive breast cancer, which historically has been thought to be uh, a higher risk breast cancer, uh, higher rates of recurrence for patients, we've really seen the pendulum swing in the direction uh, of more favorable outcomes for patients with HER2 positive disease. And so much of that is because of advances in research and the brave uh, women and, and male breast cancer patients as well um, who have participated in clinical trials to advance the development of HER2 targeted therapy. And so building on that, uh, really over the past decade, the use of Herceptin or the generic name Trastuzumab, uh, an antibody that targets uh, HER2 on the breast cancer cells, has really become standard practice uh, administered in combination with chemotherapy. And then following the chemotherapy completion, the Herceptin is continued for one year to complete one full year of treatment. And as it was initially uh, uh, developed, that one year of, of Herceptin treatment was really sort of selected arbitrarily. And there have been studies now to show that two years of Herceptin is no better than one year, and so one year remained the standard of care. But as has been uh, researched and evaluated uh, in surgery and radiation oncology and now with our chemotherapies and HER2 therapies, we're looking to see if we can de-escalate care. Do we really need one year of Herceptin? Do we really need combination chemotherapy? Can we get away with less chemotherapy? Um, and so there have been a couple studies uh, that were uh, presented at our ASCO and San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposiums in 2018, looking at a shorter course uh, of Herceptin, comparing six months versus 12 months. And while the results uh, of, of the two studies uh, indicated different outcomes, one suggesting that six months may be sufficient, and the one uh, that was presented at San Antonio uh, really definitively stating that 12 months uh, indeed should remain the standard of care. I, th I think most of the, the experts in the field would, would agree that the, the larger study that has more long-term follow-up and where the treatment interventions really reflect our more contemporary 2018 practice is that one year or 12 months uh, of Herceptin really, really will remain uh, the standard of care. Um, but I think there's a recognition and appreciation for the hard work that went into this study and to look at uh, the possibility of de-escalating care. Um, another one of uh, the important studies that was presented at the San Antonio uh, Breast Cancer Symposium was called the Catherine Trial. And uh, while there have been so many great advances for patients with HER2-positive disease, there still is a smaller subset of patients who will be uh, with operable disease who will be at higher risk for breast cancer recurrence. And so for those patients, can we do more? And so what this study was uh, evaluating were patients who uh, had uh, stage 1 to 3, HER2-positive, operable breast cancer, who received preoperative uh, systemic chemotherapy with uh, Herceptin and HER2-targeted therapy. But at the time of surgery, these patients were found to still have residual cancer. 
And while the standard practice, as I just mentioned, was to complete out a year of Herceptin, is there a more effective treatment approach uh, that could help reduce the risk of recurrence for these patients at higher risk for uh, relapse? And so what they did in this study was randomize patients who had residual cancer at the time of surgery to the standard treatment uh, to complete one year of Herceptin, or the other half of patients received a drug called TDM1. And TDM1, also called trastuzumab intensine, or Kedsila, is the Herceptin backbone. So the drug itself is that Herceptin antibody with chemotherapy directly linked to it. And when the antibody, the Herceptin component, uh, attaches to the cancer cell, it is then brought into the cancer cell, and once inside the cancer cell, that little linker molecule dissolves and releases the chemotherapy directly inside the cancer cell. So it's sort of like a smart bomb, um, direct delivery of chemotherapy. So with that in mind, not only could this potentially be more effective than Herceptin by itself, but it could also be a safer way for us to to uh, deliver chemotherapy in a very targeted fashion directly to the cancer cell with fewer side effects. And what they showed in that study was that indeed, uh, this was a very large study, roughly 1,500 patients, uh, is that indeed the TDM1 outperformed uh, the standard Herceptin in terms of reducing the risk of invasive breast cancer recurrence. And uh, I think this is, has the potential to change our practice uh, right away, and it's something that we'll need to be talking to our patients about in terms of the risks and benefits of uh, really escalating care to administer TDM1 in place of standard Herceptin for our higher-risk patients. The good news is that uh, this, this is a drug that, again, comes with a fairly uh, it's, it's well tolerated. It seems to be very safe. We don't see higher rates of cardiac toxicity compared with standard Herceptin. Um, we don't see hair loss like we see with typical chemotherapy. And, and the most common side effects associated with TDM1 are typically lab abnormalities that don't necessarily impact how the patient feels in the day-to-day. -day. And that's something that can easily be managed with dose reductions then. So I think, again, uh, most of the experts uh, in the field would agree that these results are practice-changing and have immediate implications for our patients with HER2-positive disease today. So switching gears to talk a little bit about estrogen and progesterone, uh, or also called hormone receptor-positive breast cancer, I, I thank Dr. Jankowitz for her, her thoughtful discussion regarding the low-dose tamoxifen trial. Uh, for patients with DCIS and other high-risk benign lesions. Um, I think those results as well um, are going to be very exciting to bring back to the clinic here now uh, this week and moving forward. Um, but I might uh, highlight one particular uh, trial uh, in the metastatic, hormone receptor-positive metastatic breast cancer uh, setting here, and this was the SOLAR-1 trial. And uh, the results initially presented at uh, the ESMO conference and then uh, some additional findings uh, presented here at San Antonio just a you know, few months later, uh, looking at a new targeted therapy for patients with PIK3CA mutations in their hormone receptor pos positive metastatic breast cancer. And we know that this PIK3CA mutation, uh, when we do tumor sequencing and genomic evaluation of tumors, um, that this is the most common uh, mutation that we see. And approximately 40% of women with ER-positive metastatic breast cancer have this specific mutation. And what is so uh, exciting now is that we have drugs that can specifically target uh, this mutation and this growth pathway uh, in breast cancer. And in the SOLAR1 trial, this PI3 kinase inhibitor that was evaluated is called alpalacib. And what they did in this study is uh, randomize patients uh, to really a standard endocrine therapy or hormone therapy to manage the breast cancer either alone or in combination with the alpalacib.
And what we found uh, in this study is that the addition of this targeted therapy when combined with the hormone therapy, again, outperformed uh, and improved outcomes for patients compared with the hormone therapy alone. And so I think that this is a drug that is based on these findings, that this is very exciting. This is, again, one of the most common genomic mutations in ER-positive metastatic breast cancer. And we are hoping to see uh, that the FDA will be looking at this data and potentially prioritizing this drug uh, on the pathway to FDA approval, hopefully in the near future. Uh, and in the meantime, there are other drugs that are in development um, targeting this mutation and targeting this growth pathway, if you will. Um, and I think this really highlights then my last point, which is um, that there is such great research ongoing right now looking at the genomics uh, of metastatic breast cancer in helping us to understand the biology of metastatic breast cancer or why in early stage breast cancer for some patients has the potential to metastasize and spread. And I think a better understanding of that biology through, these, through research and through clinical research will be imperative for us to continue to develop new and exciting drugs that are more um, tumor-specific uh, and, and to then utilize these drugs as well, move them into the early-stage breast cancer setting to help prevent metastatic disease in the future. And I'll, I'll stop there. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Haddad. That was really um, outstanding. A lot of excellent material, and I'm sure there'll be great questions to see you during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Roberto um, Leon Ferrer, and Dr. Ferrer is Assistant Professor, Division of Medical Oncology, Mayo Clinic. And Dr. Leon Ferrer is going to address what's new in the treatment of triple negative breast cancer, or TNBC, breast cancer in young women, understanding differences to improve outcomes, and current and future directions. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Leon Ferrer. Thank you, Dr. Messner, for the invitation, and, and thank you to my colleagues for covering in, in such a great way uh, topics that are very relevant to our patients. And, and thank you to all the patients that have, uh, that have joined the call and that have an interest in staying up to date as well, because uh, as, um, as uh, everybody knows, uh, your engagement in your own care really makes a difference and, and helps us make more, better decisions uh, for you that, that, or, that align with your goals. So uh, I echo the, the sentiment that uh, Dr. Haddad had mentioned about uh, the advances in understanding the biology of breast cancer in general, and she focused a lot on, on HER2-positive disease, and I want to say that uh, we are starting to see a lot of progress as well in triple-negative breast cancer. As many of the participants in the call may know, uh, triple-negative breast cancer is uh, the one subtype of breast cancer for which we don't have a really good understanding of, um, of potentially uh, personalized ways of, uh, of, treating, of treating it beyond chemotherapy. However, over the last years, we have started to, to get a better uh, understanding of these drivers of growth of these cancer cells, and, and we're starting to finally break down this, uh, this disease that we call triple negative breast cancer into certain subgroups that, um, that have a potential uh, Achilles heels, if you will, uh, that we can exploit to try to uh, better target and better direct our, our treatments, hopefully uh, decreasing the need for chemotherapy or combination chemotherapy. So I want to highlight particularly, I think, the most exciting uh, data that we have had uh, in the most recent months. Uh, didn't come specifically from San Antonio uh, Breast Cancer Symposium, but was presented at the ESMO, the European uh, Society of Medical Oncology meeting a couple months ago, or actually a month ago. Um, and this is the Impassion 130 trial. So this is a study of immunotherapy in combination with chemotherapy. And uh, we have known for some time now that triple negative breast cancer, uh, it's a subtype of breast cancer that appears to be able to better stimulate the immune system. And uh, with that in mind, we have uh, been conducted a series of studies over the last few years trying to evaluate medications that may be able to exploit um, um, certain proteins that, that put the brakes on the immune system and, in a way, release the brakes from the immune system to allow it to uh, go and attack the cancer cells. And um, we have had 
variable success, I would say, in, in many of these trials, and some of those were conducted with, uh, with uh, immunotherapy agents alone, and of course the type of, uh, of benefit that we see has been different between patients that have localized breast cancer versus patients that have advanced uh, breast cancer or metastatic breast cancer. Uh, and uh, this trial is very interesting and, and it's very, um, uh, you know, gives us a very positive outlook because it's the first time that we have seen that uh, combination of immunotherapy with a chemotherapy drug that uh, we commonly use as well in patients with triple negative breast cancer leads to an improvement in, in not only the time uh, to progression of the cancer, but also an improvement in the overall survival of patients, meaning that patients that are that that are eligible for this type of treatment, you know, actually see a meaningful improvement in their life expectancy as well. Uh, so this is obviously um, something that uh, hits a milestone in triple negative breast cancer that has uh, spread to other organs. And essentially, what this study showed is that the combination of a drug called atezolizumab, which is a, an immunotherapy drug, with NAP, paclitaxel, or abraxane, which is um, a chemotherapy drug that we use in uh, in, in breast cancer, particularly uh, in the metastatic setting, um, you know, led to an improvement, as I had mentioned, in the uh, in the survival of patients that had a particular marker in their uh, in their tumors called PDL1, and this is something that, at least in this study, was found to be um, present in about uh, in about 40% of uh, triple negative breast cancer cases. Um, now, what was presented at San Antonio that uh, that was also uh, very informative is um, uh, some analysis trying to um, determine uh, are there other ways that we can identify the patients that can benefit from this drug or from this combination of drugs. And essentially uh, what the trial found is that many of the markers that we have been thinking could uh, identify patients for immunotherapy uh, were not necessarily as predictive of benefit from, from this combination of drugs. For example, <coughs> excuse me, for example, uh, we have had uh, a lot of uh, questions as to where should we test this marker in the tumor cells or in the immune cells and whether patients with BRCA mutations uh, benefit more from these agents and, um, and a series of other um, potential biomarkers. And essentially, the study found that, that uh, even though uh, all of those markers may have some relevance, uh, really the only or the main marker that predicted benefit for this uh, for these drugs uh, is uh, the presence of this PDL1 marker in the immune system cells. Uh, so that was the data that was presented at San Antonio. So again, uh, uh, the bottom line I think is that we are getting a better understanding of how to use these drugs, when to use them, what to combine them with, and which patients uh, should be uh, considered for this combination of medications. Now. Um, Outside of uh, immunotherapy, talking, going back to chemotherapy, uh, there was a study that also evaluated the role of adjuvant capecitabine, which is a medication that, that we are using more and more uh, in patients that have early stage triple negative breast cancer. And this is an interesting study that was actually designed uh, a long time ago. This is a study that was designed in, in, in the mid-2000s when our uh, standard of care was somewhat different. But basically, this study showed that um, adding this drug, capecitabine, which is an oral chemotherapy drug, um, after, having, uh, after patients have undergone surgery and conventional chemotherapy um, with the standard of care drugs, the addition of this drug did not... Uh, improve the outcomes of these patients, uh, except perhaps for a, certain, for a subset of patients that have what we call non-basal triple negative breast cancer. Now, this study is interesting because it, it is somewhat discrepant to another study that was presented at San Antonio um, a couple years ago that evaluated this same medication, capecitabine, uh, but used in a different way. Uh, so uh, in the study that I mentioned uh, just now in, in this year, San Antonio, uh, evaluated this drug after patients had undergone surgery. However, a prior study called the CREATE-X study had shown that when patients get chemotherapy up front and um, uh, before surgery and then undergo surgery and are found to have some uh, residual amount of cancer that survived that previous chemotherapy, those patients that have residual disease uh, did benefit from additional treatment with capecitabine, this oral drug. Um, so um, 
so it's a little bit of a different design and i think that with that prior study that was the that had been done with patients that received chemotherapy prior to surgery uh we have adopted that that uh that treatment uh, in our practice and is now considered a standard of care and uh, the fact that this study showed that the drug used in a different way did not offer the same benefit just highlights, I think, the importance of selecting our patients uh, and the treatments for our patients appropriately and in a smarter way. I think that, um, uh, in my opinion, uh, this data just um, reinforces that uh, in many situations, particularly in triple negative breast cancer, and now with the data uh, that Dr. Haddad presented about the, the, the TDM1 medication, that there's even more a more compelling reason to treat patients with triple negative breast cancer and a subset of patients with HER2-positive disease with chemotherapy up front before they do surgery because that allows us to uh, to evaluate how our treatments are working or not working, and then we can modify our treatments um, after surgery to try to improve the outcomes of our patients. And I think we're going to be continuing to see a, a move towards giving the chemotherapy before surgery. And another uh, another um, uh, you know stimuli, if you will, for this is uh, the data that Dr. Newman shared about the study by Dr. Morante about the delayed initiation of adjuvant chemotherapy in triple negative breast cancer patients. So that showed that when patients had a delay of more than 30 days after surgery uh, uh, to start the first dose of adjuvant chemotherapy, that the outcomes were not as good. And I think that uh, you know that 30 days is somewhat uh, of a difficult benchmark sometimes to achieve, given that there may be patients that have delayed wound healing or that can have some some uh, infections after surgery. So with all of that information, and then even more so with the information about selecting our patients appropriately for additional treatment after surgery, I think that it's even more of a of a uh, of a push towards treating patients with chemotherapy before surgery and and hopefully bypass this whole issue of uh, delayed adjuvant chemotherapy initiation. And um, for the sake of time, I think I uh, I'm not going to discuss some other uh, potentially less relevant studies that I had planned, but I did want to highlight as well that um, uh, outside of San Antonio throughout the year in other meetings, there have been also other uh, studies that have been uh, important and some exciting data about uh, a few new drugs that are in development. Um, I want to just mention that um, there, uh, as I had uh, previously alluded to, there's emerging subgroups of triple negative breast cancer, and one of these subgroups is the patients that have uh, a germline BRCA mutation, and now uh, we have had the approval of the first drug that targets that patient or tumors that uh, have that particular mutation, a medication called Olaparib that becomes uh, that uh, belongs to a class of drugs called PARP inhibitors. Um, now, uh, recently, there was a second study with a second drug called Talasoparib, which is a very similar medication to Olaparib, uh, and uh, we saw essentially the same result. Uh, and this led to the approval of this drug for breast cancer patients that have metastatic disease and have a germline BRCA mutation. So um, we have now two approved agents that, that patients can, can utilize in this setting. And in addition to that, uh, there uh, is currently um, uh, a few drugs that belong to the same class that Dr. Haddad had mentioned, the antibody drug conjugates, where you have a, an antibody linked to a chemotherapy directly trying to target the chemotherapy specifically to the to the cancer cells. And while the HER2 positive breast cancer space was the only space in breast cancer where we had these drugs, now we have a few antibody drug conjugates that have shown very promising data or very promising results in triple negative breast cancer as well. And uh, one of them is very uh, uh, advanced in development and is currently in its phase three uh, trial uh, that will hopefully lead to the approval of that medication by the FDA if the efficacy is confirmed. And this drug is called Sacituzumab, Govitikens, a long name, uh, but uh, is showing a lot of efficacy in triple negative breast cancer and also uh, in other breast cancer subtypes, including ER-positive breast cancer. And then finally, uh, I'll, the one um, uh, study that I was going to highlight about breast cancer in young women is the one that uh, my colleague, Dr. Newman, already alluded to about the quality of life uh, uh, after lumpectomy. 
uh, unilateral mastectomy and bilateral mastectomy. So I just wanted to highlight that this was uh, seen particularly in younger patients with breast cancer uh, who, uh, you know, have a tendency nowadays to um, uh, desire bilateral mastectomy more frequently than, than what we would recommend from a medical perspective for the reasons that my colleagues have already highlighted. And I think I'll stop there. Oh, wow, that's really excellent. Thank you, Dr. Leon Ferrer. That was outstanding, wonderful presentation. Um, thank you so much. Um, and um, thank you. And our next speaker is uh, Ms. Mary Rose Mangeli. Ms. Mangeli is an oncology social worker, and she's our Women's Cancer's Program Coordinator here at Cancer Care. Um, and Ms. Mangeli will be addressing Cancer Care's free psychosocial services and programs and the role of support groups. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Mangeli. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. I am <clears throat> happy to be here to be part of this program. As Dr. Mesner said, I am the Women's Cancers Program Coordinator here at Cancer Care, and I've worked closely with people diagnosed with breast cancer and their loved ones. Um, as some of you may know, Cancer Care is a nationally a national nonprofit organization that provides free, uh, free professional uh, support services to anyone affected by cancer. Cancer care programs include individual counseling, um, in-person, in the New York area, and over the telephone nationally, support groups, which we also uh, provide in-person in the New York area, as well as telephone nationally and online nationally and internationally. We also provide education programs, practical help, assistance navigating the health care system, and some limited financial assistance. All of our services are provided by licensed masters, level oncology social workers, and are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers are trained in how to diagnose the in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and friends. We are also trained to help patients and and their supports tackle the problems that accompany the disease, such as the financial demands physical challenges, social adjustment, and psychological impact. Adjusting to and finding ways of coping with the diagnosis in all, the, in all areas I just mentioned is an important part of, of the process. As you may know, cancer affects the whole person and the entire family. Asking for help as a patient, caregiver, or loved one by joining a support group or by contacting a social worker for counseling is a sign of strength. You do not have to walk this path alone. Joining a support group is a way to connect with others who are going through a similar situation or are experiencing similar pro uh, problems. Individual counseling provides a space that is just yours to voice any concerns and navigate any of the issues I mentioned earlier. These connections help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer and their loved ones experience. Feeling well emotionally can help you better deal with the diagnosis and the treatment. At this time, Cancer Care offers, as I mentioned, online support groups for people with breast cancer, including groups for metastatic breast cancer um, and triple negative breast cancer. We also provide both um, patient and caregiver support groups, and as I mentioned, in the New York area. Um, if you're interested in any of uh, Cancer Care services, please call our Hope Line, which is 1-800-813-4673, or just visit our website at cancercare.org. Our website is very comprehensive, and you can find a lot of information not only on support, but all of our programs, as well as on your cancer diagnosis treatment and ways of coping as you go through this. On our website, you can also register for future workshops and online support groups. So I'd like to say thank you to Dr. Mesner, and please um, remember that you're not alone, and Cancer Care Services are here to help you. Thank you for the attention and the opportunity to work, to to work with Dr. Mesner and talk with you all today. Oh, thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you so much, Ms. Sanjali. That was wonderful and wonderful resource for everybody. And so please do take advantage of it. And now we have time for questions. We have a lot of time for questions. And I know there are lots of questions. So I'm going to ask um, uh, Sonia to explain to me how to queue up the questions. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. 
if we do not get to your question, I will give you guidance in terms of how to get your questions answered. But let's see how many we can take right now. <laughs> okay? And you'll be all of our speakers on board as well. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchdown telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to move yourself in the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Our first question comes from Lynn S. Your line is now open. Thank you very much. Fabulous program. I wanted to find out with the increased use of neoadjuvant chemotherapy, particularly in triple negative and HER2-new, in the situation when the individual goes to surgery and there's a lot of residual disease, wouldn't that be the appropriate time to then proceed with genomic testing to pinpoint what might be the next type of treatment to utilize on that patient? Thank you. Well, thank you for Thank you for the question, um, and uh, Dr. Um, Haddad, do you want to address that question? Sure, I'd be happy to. I think that is an excellent, uh, excellent thought or observation here. And certainly there are efforts that are ongoing for patients who are participating in neoadjuvant uh, clinical trials today um, to be collecting that residual cancer uh, that survives uh, following standard uh, preoperative therapy and to be doing this exact type of research, uh, to be doing tumor sequencing uh, and all the omics uh, studying of tumors to understand the biology and which pathways are relevant and need to be targeted for postoperative intervention. Um, certainly, I think that is the where we're going uh, in terms of uh, research today. Uh, that's the strategy, but it still remains very much in clinical trials and in research. We still really do need to uh, prove in principle that this type of uh, care pathway uh, does in fact improve outcomes. So specifically, we would need to prove through clinical trials that sequencing of a patient's residual cancer and identifying potentially targetable uh, mutations or driver mutations uh, with targeted therapies will ultimately move the needle and improve long-term outcomes. And I think if we can demonstrate that through research, that will become the new standard practice in the future. But wonderful, wonderful uh, thoughts. Excellent. Great question. And then we have another question in front of our online participant um, for Dr. Jenkowitz. Does the Catherine trial have any implications for the treatment of HER2 uh, positive and um, metastatic breast cancer patients, are there any trial ongoing comparing TDM1 to trastuzumab in the metastatic setting? Um, the, in the metastatic setting, TDM1 is pretty firmly established already in the second line space. Um, I don't envision that Moving, I mean, we have such great success using TDM1 for patients with metastatic HER2 positive breast cancer. What what is currently under investigation in the metastatic space for HER2 positive disease are antibody drug conjugates. Uh, there are a lot of ongoing trials for patients who have had progression after TDM1, looking at other antibody drug conjugates. But I think that where it sits now in the treatment of metastatic disease is where it will stay, at least for the time being. I don't know if anyone else has any data or any anything else to comment on to that regard. Well, thank you, Dr. Haddad. Do you want to comment? Um... Yeah, no, I completely agree. You know, this drug is <laughs> FDA approved and has been for several years uh, for the, the management of HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer. Uh, and as Dr. Jenkins uh, mentioned, uh, there are new antibody drug conjugates that could potentially be more effective than TDM1 that are in development today and being evaluated in clinical trials, as well as some combination studies looking at uh, combining TDM1 with other HER2-directed therapies or with other um, targeted therapies, to tr uh, as well as potentially immunotherapy to see if we can make the, the treatment strategy with the antibody drug conjugate more, even more effective. 
Yeah, I guess I should. I guess I should comment too that the combination of TDM1 and neratinib is is of exactly. of, of interest. Um, and you know, identifying which patients might benefit from that combination mm -hmm. strategy is is of great interest. Well, excellent. Thank you. And another question of Dr. Haddad, based on what we learned at SABCS, what should metastatic breast cancer patients say to their oncologists if they have not had molecular profiling on their metastatic tissue? You know, I think it is, I, I certainly encourage patients to have discussions with their oncologists if they have uh, metastatic t disease to be talking to the uh, to their oncologists about the potential to have their tumors uh, sequenced. In some practices, it is becoming more standard. I think the uptake uh, or adoption of, of uh, genomic testing of, of metastatic tumors is becoming more common practice now. I think it's also important, though, to recognize that sometimes the, there may be barriers with insurance coverage uh, for this testing, and it would be also important to have a con conversation with with one's insurer about whether or not such testing will be um, uh, covered because it is very expensive. Uh, but I think also to talk to the oncologist about research opportunities, and there are a lot of great clinical trials that are ongoing right now that will provide genomic uh, sequencing and, and tumor sequencing free of charge as part of participation uh, in clinical trials. So I think you know there certainly is opportunity with some of the testing that is uh, available clinically uh, but there may be even greater uh, opportunity uh, to gain access to tumor sequencing through clinical trials so that in addition uh, to the patient benefiting from this knowledge, it may contribute to a larger body of scientific research that's ongoing uh, to try and help improve outcomes for women with metastatic disease and ultimately to translate that to early operable uh, breast cancer as well. Thank you. And I'm going to ask Ms. Vangeli to comment because we obviously prefer that the cost not be not that not allow somebody to access state-of-the-art care. And with a multidisciplinary team consisting of oncology social workers, patient navigators, um, a lot of financial specialists, um, I'm going to ask Ms. Vangeli if you could comment on just the sometimes people don't realize that there may be some resources for them for coverage for things that they everyone kind of thinks they can't have coverage for. So if you could comment on that. Oh, certainly. Um, as I mentioned earlier, cancer care does provide some limited financial assistance for things like travel expenses because that could get um, really expensive, especially when you're traveling um, 50 miles, 200 miles to um, your cancer center um, for treatment of chemotherapy or radiation. There are also um, copayment assistance foundations that can help with um, the cost of medication. Also, sometimes um, there are copayment assistance programs with um, pharmaceutical companies that produce the drugs. You may uh, be eligible for a patient assistance program. Here at Cancer Care, we can provide you with all those resources if needed. Um, so if you just give us a call at any time, um, any of our oncology social workers can definitely assist you with all of that information. That's really important because I think that, and, and definitely mention any financial concerns you have with your healthcare team. That's very important as well, so they can then get that going and definitely call cancer care as well. And all the other, there are lots of other organizations as well. We will, when you get your evaluation, we will actually give you all sorts of resources to get all kinds of help with, so that you'll be able to get all the, you know, you'll you'll, you'll be, um, but you also need someone often to help you walk through that path. And I think the concept of clinical trials and talking to your healthcare team could be very important. Well, I know there are many more questions in queue. Um, we did say this would be an hour program, and I want to thank all of our speakers. You've been extraordinary. This has been an extraordinary call. I want to thank our speakers. I want to thank all of you who've queued up and asked questions, both on the telephone and online. You've enhanced the call today. And I also want to now get to the issue of how do you get your other questions answered, because I know that's the, that I said I would do that. So, um, so first of all, definitely your healthcare team is a good place to start if you have a question. That's a very good thing to do. But then I also recommend that um, for questions that you still have, 
that you have, first of all, all these breast cancer organizations that you can contact that have a huge amount of information for you um, that's evidence-based, and also the National Cancer Institute. Um, they have both a toll-free number and they have um, a website, um, and they also have a live chat feature where you can post your question and the information specialist will get you that information. So do that. That's very important. We will send you all that information um, actually on your evaluation so you'll have everything you need without having to write quickly to take down these numbers and uh, email, uh, websites. Um, we, and I think, as Ms. Vangeli had said earlier, we don't want any one of you to feel you're alone in coping with breast cancer, coping with any type of cancer. We want you to know that you're now, there are lots of organizations out there, Cancer Care being one of them, to help you. And you simply have to either, for some of you in the United States, you can pick up the phone and call us, and if you or you may prefer to visit our website and connect with us that way as well. That's true for people in the U.S. and internationally as well. And I do want to call attention to a couple of things we have coming up. We have a program on January 9th for breast cancer and younger women, um, which may be of interest to some of you on the call. And um, we also have a meditation app. So um, one of the things that goes along with coping with any type of cancer, breast cancer included, is that one often does feel a level of discomfort, stress, um, um, you know, and Having access to an app that gives you a relaxation technique could be very helpful. So this meditation app is free, and it actually is, um, it does provide relaxation exercises. So do take advantage of that as well. Um, and I want to thank all of you for your participation today. I want to wish you all a very fine day, and thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.